We're going to talk to Gail and James and Tony and Alice. And uh, let's just get started. Uh, I believe, yep, that's the order the calls came in. So Gail's up first. Good morning, Gail. Good morning. Good morning. Two questions. One, I have a large container um, pot in, in the front of my house, and it gets a lot of light and a little bit of sun. Okay. And I want to plant something pretty in there that would last all year, not only winter, but summer. Okay. And there, I don't know what. Well, there are quite a lot of different choices. You're not going to find a lot of things that will bloom in a situation like that. Uh, and the things that do bloom will have a relatively short blooming period. So if you just want to fill the pot with something that's just going to be pretty all the time you're basically looking at green things now the little bit of sun that it gets is it morning sun or hot afternoon sun um i think it's morning sun okay it seems like more morning sun i have a big oak tree okay yeah and by afternoon that kind of shades a lot of that area okay very good tell me one more thing how big is the pot approximately how many inches in diameter uh, it's it's fifteen inches in diameter. Okay, very and about eighteen inches tall. All right, and do you want something? Does it need to be? Do you want something that's really upright, really tall, or do you want something that's just full and pretty? Full and pretty. Okay, it can be a little tall, but I wouldn't want it over a. Foot. You don't want a straight up shrub or anything yeah. like that. You know if. If I were doing it, I would probably do a combination of two or three different things just for interest. Um, if you if you want, uh, you know, solid green, this would be a great place. Toward the center of the pot, I would put something that is slightly more upright. Uh, my three top choices would probably be aspidistra or cast iron plant. Uh, it's named uh, nicknamed cast iron plant because it is just almost indestructible. Another choice, another choice would be giant liriope, or some people say liriope, L-I-R-I-O-P-E. Okay. Uh, still another choice might be a big, they call them foxtail ferns. They're not really ferns. They're a variety of asparagus, but they have the sort of uh, conical shoots that come up. And uh, the aspidistra is going to be cold-hardy to probably 10 degrees. The giant liriope is going to be cold-hardy to probably 15 degrees. The um, foxtail may freeze back if we get down into the teens, but it typically comes right back out again. So uh, those are three choices for things that I would consider for the center of the pot. And then I would plant something around it that uh, might trail you know, over, hang down, there are a bunch of different varieties of English ivy, some of them variegated, some of them solid green, some of them will be uh, green and white, some of them sort of a yellow and green color, but uh, that would be a very pretty something that you could plant around that would, you know, that would trail down and right. uh, perhaps, you know, eventually actually reach the level of the porch. And for something low maintenance, something that you don't have to do anything except a little liquid fertilizer a few times a year and water when the soil's, you know, dry and knuckle deep, that would create a very pretty pot. Now, the other option is to plant one of the plants we mentioned 
in the center and then perhaps plant three or four ivies around it. And there are other things you could use. There's some pretty variety of Asiatic jasmine that could go in the base or some other things. But there's just so many pretty English ivies. But you might leave a little room in between and consider not planting the whole pot with flowering things, but leave room for maybe three cyclamen around it, which are going to give you bright colored flowers all through the cooler weather months. You could replace those with impatience or begonias or caladiums or something like that, you know, in the warmer season. And that way, 90% of your pot is something that's evergreen, unchanging, but you could seasonally, you know, spend 10 to 20 bucks and have some real pretty color in there that would last throughout uh, the cool months. Like I say, I'd be planting three or four cyclamen in there right now. And then when we get to the warmer weather season, I'd like to say caladiums, impatience, begonias, uh, those are three good choices. If you're just looking for other foliages, you could actually plant some coleus in there, some strobilanthus, some uh, irisine. There are a lot of different things. And to me, that would be the ultimate thing, to have some seasonal color, but uh, something that you just had to replace uh, three or four little plants every season. You'd have the, the majority of it just stayed pretty for you year after year after year. The the iron plant. Cast iron, uh-huh. Is that the same as a mother-in-law's tongue? No, ma'am. It looks something like a mother-in-law's tongue, but mother-in-law's tongue will just absolutely melt at 32 degrees. It will die with the first hard freeze. Uh, The aspidistra, the leaves are somewhat like that, but they are in no way related. Okay, great. All right, my second question, uh, which is entirely different, cucumbers Mm -hmm. come coated with wax right and i i always peel my cucumbers unfortunately i don't have enough sun anywhere on the property to grow my own (laughs) okay and i peel it and somebody said oh you shouldn't peel it the wax won't hurt you is that true um well the wax won't kill you but (laughs) do you think your digestive system is really going to be happy eating wax no. No, it's not. So, uh, again, it's not something that you're going to rush to the hospital for eating, but it's certainly not on my diet plan. Um, you can get a lot of that wax off with something like hydrogen peroxide or there is a fruit wash. There are things that you can uh, rinse those. Or you can do simply as you doing, peel the cucumbers. Um, you know, when you peel a potato, you, you lose a lot of the minerals and things like that that are in the right. skin. When you peel a cucumber, you don't lose much of anything except that tough outer covering. So uh, I think I think peeling is probably a pretty good idea. <laughs> Thank you. That puts my mind to rest. Very good. Well, you get out and enjoy this beautiful Sunday. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Gail. <laughs> Bye. Bye. All right, now we get to talk to James. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How are you doing this morning? (laughs) You know why this is one of those mornings. I I wish I was sitting out somewhere broadcasting out in the sunshine because it is a gorgeous morning out there, but I'm doing well. You know, it's just one of those uh, mornings, one of those days, it's not going to last nearly long enough to get everything done. I just about got everything done. Oh, lucky you. (laughs) <laughs> a few more things this afternoon, and then I'll be caught up. Uh, boy, this weather's great. Um, I wanted to share some information with you. I talked to uh, Troy up there at uh, Bright, Bright Ideas. Ideas. Yeah, uh-huh. And uh, about the azomite, and he says the micronized is what 
you boys need to use in your uh, your potting soil and your germination mix, you know. Mm-hmm. And then the granulated is for bed preparation. Okay. But he he said uh, don't eliminate the uh, the green sand because the azomite really hasn't got very much iron in it. Right. Right. So add the azomite to your mix. I think that's probably good advice. The you know problem is that the green sand is just not you know the good quality green sand that we once got. Most anything you buy these days that says green sand is coming out of East Texas. You may have some arsenic contamination and things like that. Um, the Carl Pool Company and I'm pretty sure Adams carries Carl Pool products. They either have or very shortly will have on the market something called Jersey Green Sand. It's oh it's it's pretty comparable in price. Uh, it may be very similar to what the Ladybug product they call Magic Sand was, but uh, it's going to be a good green sand that resembles. You know, green sand is is mined literally a hundred, if not several hundred places around the country. And because anywhere you've had an ancient seabed or an ancient lake bed, you have the potential to have green sand having formed there. So uh, I go along with Troy. I mean, azomite has a little iron in it, but green sand has a lot of iron in it. But uh, I'll tell you, if you can get it from somewhere other than an East Texas iron source, it's going to be a lot cleaner, a lot better green sand. And just the, the most commonly available one right now, in fact, the only alternative one I think you'll find at a real reasonable price would be uh, uh, would be Carpool's what they call Jersey green sand. That was my next question. I've, I've only got about a few inches of green sand left in that five-gallon bucket, and right. I'm going to, I need to replace it. Now, if you're recommending uh, that, uh, that's... I'll try to get my hands on it. You know, for just general bed use, I imagine the East Texas green sand is okay. But, you know, you're growing so many vegetables, you're growing so many edibles and things like that. I, I, you know, check out the cost. I can't say that I've looked at them side by side. But uh, for my budget, the Jersey green sand fits in pretty well. And, of course, I've still got a couple of pallets of uh, the Ladybug Magic Sand, which uh, I suspect may be the same as the Jersey green sand. But that'll be what I'll be going to unless they reopen one of the other green sand mines here in Texas and we start getting some cleaner product. Okay, well, excuse me. Thanks for uh, all the good information. I sure appreciate it. And I'll, uh, I'll let you go and you can talk with your other colleagues. <laughs> well, you get out and have a good Sunday, James. I'm James. I'm interested and envious that uh, you actually feel like you're caught up on things. Uh, if you really just need some work to do, you call me, and I think I'll find something to keep you off the streets. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Well, you get well, out. Pretty, have a have a good list. have a good Sunday. I always enjoy visiting with you. Thanks, Thank Bob. you, sir. Um, bye. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Tony and Alice and Ron and Sharon, and Tony's up next. Good morning, Tony. Hey, Bob. Good, good morning. Good How morning. Really enjoy uh, just another beautiful morning out there. Yes, sir. So I have a couple of probably easy questions. I've got some uh, poinsettias from last year, and I want to, they turn green. I want to turn them red. 
Okay. So we understand we have to put them in the dark, but do we ever let them out for three or four weeks? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Here's, here's what you need to do. Poinsettias are one of many plants, including chrysanthemums, Christmas cacti, a number of perennials, and they're what we call short day bloomers. They bloom in response to having long nights and short days. And what you have to do if you have them in a place where they get light at night or have had them in a place where they get light at night, you just have to mimic what mother nature is doing with the with the light conditions outside if you have if you can put them in a room where you never turn on the light in the evening then uh but have them in a sunny window they will color up naturally if you need to have them in a place that where you occasionally do turn the lights on at night what you have to do is every afternoon four or five o'clock stick them in a dark closet Take them back out again 8 o'clock the next morning. Give them the good bright sunlight. But that night, you have to put them back into the closet. They are so sensitive that if you miss even one day in about a 60-day period, they won't turn color. They are so sensitive. Wow. Uh, one of our growers uh, had a well has a range of greenhouses. One of them uh, is the, the very front greenhouse. They were having a lot of trouble getting their poinsettias to color up, and they finally realized that there was a curve in the highway right in front of that greenhouse, and just headlights from cars flashing in there all night long was enough to keep the poinsettias from turning color. So, uh, yes, they, they don't want to stay in the dark. They just want to have a long, dark night every night. Now, once they start forming color, those really aren't blooms. They're what we call bracts. They're modified leaves that turn color in a poinsettia. Once the coloring up has started, then you don't have to worry about the length of the days. It's sort of an irreversible thing. Once they've started coloring, they will continue to color. But if you were to start this process right now, you would have... Beautiful poinsettias, uh, maybe not for Valentine's Day, but probably shortly thereafter. So uh, you're way too late on the Christmas season. But uh, just in years to come, that's what you need to do. Easiest thing, of course, is to have a place that you don't turn the lights on or off. Many years, if they're planted out in your flower beds, they do just fine. This year, unfortunately, we got that October, mid-October hard freeze, so very few people have them in the yard coming out. But anyway, that's uh, that's what makes poinsettias turn color, and that's what you have to do if you want to make yours. Good, good. Thank you. So uh, my second question, we have some sago palms that they're about 14 years old, so they're established, they look good, okay. but they've way overgrown the patio, the sidewalk. Uh-huh. Can I pull, I've got farm equipment to do it, can I pull those up gently and replant them, or are they just too big? They are very valuable being that size because, as you've noticed, they grow very slowly. You can certainly transplant them. I don't know that I would just physically rip them out of the ground with your bucket or backhoe. I would dig them to move them, but you absolutely cannot do it at this time of year. Sagos are totally different from woody plants, and I guess the good news is when you cut the root on a sago, it dies all the way back to the trunk of the plant, and then it has to start over making new roots. So because of that, you don't have to get a very big root ball at all to transplant them successfully. I mean, what I would do is just dig around them, perhaps trim some of the lower fronds so you don't get prickled to death, but uh, dig around cutting the roots, you know, maybe six, eight inches out from 
uh, that big old base and then simply use your equipment to lift it up, move it to the place that you want to replant it and plant it back into the ground. But you have to do this during the warm season. The time to transplant sago palms and other true palms, sagos are actually a cycad, but the time that we transplant those things is during the warm months of the year. Woody plants, yeah, we transplant them in the winter, but the sago's not going to start growing those new roots until the soil is warm. So we do the kind of transplanting you're talking about in July and August, which is just the total opposite of when we'd be moving a Yopon holly or a pittosporum or a, an oak tree, something like that. So, yes, it can be done. Yes, it's fairly easy to do, but you just got off the hook for about six months before you need to get out and actually do it. <laughs> and how how deep do you try to dig? Oh, no more than, uh, you know, 12 to 18 inches is plenty. Remember, all oh, those okay. roots are going to die anyway, so there's no sense in trying to get a real big root ball. You just want to put it back in uh, not just warm but hot soil so that the roots regrow immediately, and I'd say your chances of success are about 99%. So uh, if you need to do a little trimming, if those fronds are just in the way and you're getting stuck every time you walk by, you can go ahead and trim those back at this time of year. won't hurt a thing. But the actual transplanting should be done when the soil's very, very warm. All right. Thank you. And my last question, if I have time, St. Augustine grass, we have it irrigated. And uh, it's still a little bit green. Uh-huh. Do we do any watering at all? And where are you? You're Marion? We are Lavernia. Yes, okay. sir. This, this particular spot is Lavernia. Yes, sir. Um, if we don't get, you know, rains of at least an inch, plan on watering about every three weeks. Uh, you never okay. stop watering in the winter months. Many years, Mother Nature takes care of all the watering we need. But if we have a dry winter and you don't water, body grass will die. It doesn't go truly dormant. So you don't have to water nearly as often, but you certainly do need to water periodically if Mother Nature doesn't help us out. Okay. Sounds good. Well, thank you very much, Bob. Well, you're welcome, and you have a wonderful Sunday. Call me anytime I can help. Thank you, sir. <laughs> thank Bye-bye. you, Tony. Bye. Alice is next. Good morning, Alice. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I have a friend who has a um, a little rose bush. It's probably two and a half in uh, two and a half feet tall. Okay. But it's in a uh, one of these stemmed glass shaped stone planters that has no hole in the bottom. Oh goodness! Okay. Yeah, and I don't know how she's kept it this long except she hasn't watered <laughs> it. It's dry as a bone, I'm sure. Oh my goodness, that's not good. I don't know whether I should take it out of there. Uh, now and i'm sure the soil will come away from the roots or leave it there and trust it to survive the winter i would water it uh you know a small amount mm-hmm. and give a little fertilizer because she's done nothing all she does is water the esperanza until it died you know how that is oh yeah yeah well you know, being too dry is death to a rose bush. Look very carefully at the stems. If they get too dry, you'll see the bark begin to shrivel, and that is many times the end of the rose bush. So um, it will need some water. I would tell you that if you want to keep it in that pot, um, probably the easiest thing to do is just dump a few cups, couple of cups of ice on it periodically because that ice is going to melt slowly enough that it's pretty much all absorbed by the soil and by the root system. 
and uh, you just have to hope we don't get flooding rains that would cause it to be saturated. If we did, you'd have to tip that uh, pot over and, you know, drain things out as best you could. If you want to do the best and easiest thing long term, I would take it out of that pot and go ahead and plant it in the ground somewhere or else plant it in a pot with a hole in the bottom. Now, because of the shape of that pot, you're not going to be able to just, you know, slip it out of the pot. I would take my hose. I would wash as much of the soil away from the root system as I could. I'd probably just turn the pot all over on the side, drag it out in the grass or somewhere that you're not going to make a super mess. And and have your new hole dug. You can't leave the rose bare-rooted or, you know, that will kill it. But most of the roses that are grown in other parts of the country then ship to this area. I think about places like Fanix that sell a lot of the newer, fancier hybrids. They ship in cases and cases of bare-root roses, but then pot them up immediately, and they do very well. So if you were to take you know move this pot one way or another to an area that you don't worry about making such a mess just take your hole and just keep washing the soil away washing the soil away washing the soil away until basically you have a bare root plant then you would be able to slip it out of that pot even though you know it is kind of vase shaped replant it water it in with some super thrive some garret juice something like that and uh, you're you're pretty close to 100% chance of being successful with that, so long as you don't leave it out, so long as you don't leave the roots dry. And that would be, to me, the best situation. Well, and this is, uh, this pot is, is <coughs> excuse me, it's um, up in, uh, near the door on her porch. Mm-hmm. It doesn't get a lot of rain, or it would have drowned by now. Right, especially this year, yeah. But should I do that uh, later or now? You've got between now and Valentine's Day would be the best time to get it accomplished. It doesn't have to be today. doesn't have to be this week. But I would certainly do it well in advance of when the hot weather hits. So I typically tell people sometime between Thanksgiving and Valentine's. So you're in a perfect time to do it. But if your life gets busy, as Dave Ramsey says, if life happens uh, and you don't get around to it till January, you're just fine to do it then, Alice, whatever whatever works for your schedule. What if she does not want it in the ground, if she still wants it in that silly little pot? I would, I would put it in a – I would do one of two things. I would either – uh, put it into a sh- uh, pot with a hole in the bottom, probably with maybe a little different shape. But you can find many, many very attractive pots, urns, you know, whatever you want to call them. Um, without seeing it, I can't tell you. It's possible that somebody could put a good masonry bit on, you know, a good heavy drill. I use a Bosch brand drill, which is uh, just a real workhorse, and could possibly drill a hole up through the bottom into that pot without damaging it and get some drainage that way. But uh, most plants that are in pots that do not drain uh, don't do well over a long period of time, especially since it sounds like she's not really able to give it the kind of care it needs. You know, uh, life does happen, and I'm going to do it the way, you know, just put it in another pot yeah. and, uh, with a hole in it, the black pot, and see if it'll fit back in there. And if it won't, then she'll just have to live with it. Well, she just have to get a new pot, and there are plenty of them out there, and might make a good Christmas gift if it's someone that's very close to you. I'll give her a pot that fits the, the other pot. And she can't argue about that. <laughs> thank you. Very You're a good friend, Alice. <laughs> Have you. a good Sunday, and thank you. Thank you. Bye. 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 
All right, back to the top of the board. That's Ron, then it'll be Sharon, Raul, and Diane. Good morning, Ron. Yay, good morning. Uh, always enjoy your show. Thank you, sir. Uh, hey, my wife and I have been uh, clearing the back of our property of, um, it'd be I'm going to call them desert willows, and then and just totally covered with uh, some kind of uh, briar that's low to the okay. ground like the blackberries or something right it's probably not actually desert willow that's a pretty tree you're probably looking at what they call roosevelt weed or poverty weed you're doing a good thing <laughs> well it's it, it gets up there you know about yep. an inch inch and a half well wood woody and then 10 foot tall anyway they're all dead the briars aren't and it's been a difficult task of uh trying to clear all that out of there uh, I've been using my string mower on those briars, which right. works really good. Well, but here's my question. It's an area of about at least 50 by 50 square yard area. Okay. Um, what, I, I want to put it in some kind of a grass. Not I'm not going to water it. It'll mm-hmm. be a, more of a pasture grass or a Bermuda. How do I, what should I use and uh, what, uh, it won't be watered, of course. Big trees uh, out there or not many trees? Well, um, we're discovering that uh, there's uh, quite a few uh, Chinese, uh, well, I'm going to call them Chinese, but elm trees. Okay. And uh, there's a few cedars. Uh-huh. Um, so anyway, uh, but I want to keep it mowed. Okay. Um, you know, the what I would do is uh, call Dean Williams over at Douglas King Seed here in San Antonio. They have several native grass mixes, and um, when you say you want to keep it mowed, do you plan to do your mowing with a line trimmer, with a push mower, with no. a riding mower? Right, riding mower. Okay. Most of our native grasses would like to grow a little taller. Um, there is, I mean, if you want something that's going to be really attractive with absolute minimal care, in fact, we'll ever practically never need mowing, you may want to look at a native grass blend, which is called Habiturf, H-A-B-I-T-U-R-F. It was developed up at the Wildflower Research Center in Austin, and it is a, a beautiful, beautiful grass. It's actually, uh, the grass that they have planted all around the George Bush Library up in Dallas, and uh, it's it's it, it just I can't think of any negatives about it. It's going to do much better in the sun than it does in the shade, and you can plant it from seed, which makes it uh, much less expensive than trying to go in with some kind of sod. And I think that would probably, if I were doing it, that would be the grass I would choose. Uh, if you wanted to, you could just go with one of the new hybrid Bermudas. Uh, there, you know, there are several good new Bermuda grasses out there that are very low maintenance, but they don't stay quite as attractive year round. But once again, you can mow them or not mow them. I guess the only thing I will tell you is this is not the best time of year for planting. In fact, it's absolute wrong time of year to plant Bermuda grass. You could probably plant your habit turf now. I would probably be waiting till February to plant it uh, if that's what I were doing. But uh, call Douglas King Seed. If you want to check them out online today, you can do it as DK is in Douglas 
Ross King, DKSeeds.com. They're right here in San Antonio, but if you they're over sort of on the east side of town. If you don't want to pick it up, they can actually ship the seed to your door. But uh, I'd talk to them about the amount of seeds you need. They can tell you a little bit more about the exact planting process. hate to say it. They'll probably tell you to use chemical fertilizer, and I wouldn't do that. I just use one of the good organics. But uh, uh, the Habit Turf is really a remarkable grass. And I can tell you from experience, you're going to have to keep mowing to get rid of those briars. You never get rid of them uh, without repeated mowing over time. But uh, but something like your habit turf is going to fit perfectly into that plan. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, should I lightly till it or just leave no. it alone? And- well, you'd lightly till it if you like. But realize when you till, you're going to bring up weed seeds that have been lying there dormant for many, many years. The Habiturf does like to be buried slightly. Um, if, uh, you know, if it were a really big area and if you had access to a disc harrow or even, uh, you know, just a little chisel plow or something to just very, very gently break up the top of the ground. I wouldn't be getting out there with a Troy built tiller and really going after it big time. You're going to tear up your tree roots and your tiller probably. But if you could loosen the soil at the time you plant the seed, uh, it would come up faster. It would be thicker initially. Yeah, that, that those uh, briars. I mean, it's just constant briar. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's no gap. <laughs> well, you have a fifty by fifty area. I have several hundred acres that I fight them on. Well, so that's why I came to you with this question. Yeah, so, it, uh, if you ever want to look it up, it's called Smilax. S M I L A X. Smilax Bone and Axe. If you've ever dug one up, it has this huge underground, massive stem that it grows from. And so you just cut it repeatedly. Don't ever let it get real big, and it eventually gives up and dies on you. I've been successful with limiting it. I don't try to eliminate it from the whole, you know, my whole property, but anywhere that I'm working around and uh, want it a little neater, I just mow it repeatedly, and it eventually dies out. Oh, oh that sounds. That's what I wanted to hear. All right. Well, I appreciate the help. Always a pleasure, Ron. Thank you so much for the call. <laughs> Goodbye. Yep. Bye. All right, Sharon's turn. Good morning, Sharon. Good morning. Good morning. I have a question that I don't know that you can answer or not. I'll sure try. I bought a bag of cat litter. Uh-huh. And uh, when I was brought it home, I looked at it, and it the ingredients said diatomaceous earth, D-E. Okay. What? Is that the swimming pool kind? Is no. that no, it's and that's probably a small portion of what's in there. Your basic cat litter is either going to be uh, um, something they call it just a di- uh, calcine clay type of material, or they used to use something called zeolite, which was actually an excellent mineral because it absorbs the ammonia and reduces the odor. But uh, I cannot imagine, I've never seen any cat litter that was the... Uh, purely diatomaceous earth and if it was uh it would be the natural de it would not be the uh not be the heat treated form because heat treated form wouldn't absorb anything would not serve as a good cat litter at all so uh um i i wouldn't be concerned but you know look at look at brands look at ingredients next time and uh if you can find any that is still zeolite that's the best of all worlds if not uh just a good clay cat litter is this a clumping type or is this the regular uh, scoopable that's a little pellet is all i can tell yeah. you yeah no it's can it, okay can it be used 
as I would use it in the yard. Sure. Just spread it around. You can actually blend it into the soil if you like. It'll help loosen the soil. And even if it's, uh, shall we say, used, <laughs> it's certainly not going to hurt anything. I probably wouldn't put it in the vegetable garden if it's full of uh, of excrement from the kitty cats. But anywhere else, flower beds or lawn or anything else, not going to hurt a thing. Okay. Well, that's probably what I'll end up using it in my yard. That's fine. <laughs> Without it being contaminated <laughs> <laughs> there you go <laughs> all okay, right i just i was just shocked when i picked it up and just read the ingredients and i thought wait a minute i don't know what this is <laughs> <laughs> well read the ingredients first next time but this is not a horrible material and you sure don't have to do anything special okay well i i have i know what i can do with it excellent you get out and enjoy your sunday Thank you. Thank you, Sharon. Bye-bye. All right. It's going to be Raul, Diane, Martha, and James. Good morning, Raul. Morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Talk to you again. Thank you. Yes, sir. Yes, I do have a, a, I have another grass question. Okay. I have some St. Augustine that uh, we lost uh, in, in some of the droughts uh, okay. years back. Yeah. And now with some of the flooding lately. I've, uh, it's come back, so I want to take care. I want to restore this section of St. Augustine. Okay. So I was wondering what would be the best way, like, like as far as putting uh, pre-emergent and no, don't don't worry about is, don't is don't worry about that. pre-emergence. I, two things I would do: I would uh, you know put down some good organic fertilizer. Doesn't have to say winterizer or any stupid stuff like that. Just the same stuff you use year-round. I put some, down some good organic fertilizer. You mentioned compost. I'd put a quarter to half an inch on top. I would watch it for any sign of brown patch. If you see the blades yellowing or turning brown, if you can reach down and pull that blade up and it pulls away from the runner easily, the runner stays down but the blade comes up, that's sort of what the most common brown patch symptoms are. If you find any of that, put down a little whole ground cornmeal. Um, you may or may not. You know, it's just we're getting late enough into the fall that I think we're going to see less of it. But mainly fertilizer and compost. And if it gets dry, uh, you know, do water it every two or three weeks during the winter months. But uh, a year on your road to recovery, as long as it gets water, St. Augustine is our hardiest grass. It will choke out weeds. It will choke out uh, even Bermuda grass. Okay, now when exactly, uh, when when do I put the, the fertilizer or the compost? Well, as soon as Dr. Kirby and I go off the air would be a real good time, about, about one minute oh. after 12 today. <laughs> I'm teasing you. Do it as soon as you can. It's This is a okay. perfect time of year. You do not have to water either product in. Um, you know, it's totally non-burning, totally safe for people and pets, and uh, you've, you there's no time deadline that you have to get it done by uh the sooner you do it the sooner your grass is going to improve but uh you know see how it fits in roll schedule and do it as soon as you have the opportunity oh and i have a uh i just had one other question uh yeah. my wife i bought her the the orchids from the from the uh, box stores here okay and you know the real the ones you get for special occasions yeah probably phalaenopsis and right so so right, so now they've they've uh, they went they died eventually, and but my wife kept the plant, and uh-huh. she's trying to get it to rebloom. Sure, is that is that possible? Because she's had it for she's had a orchid 
that I bought for two years. She's, she's been trying to get it to rebloom for two years. Okay. And Pro- she has, has never rebloomed. And there are probably three things it needs. Probably needs more light. Probably needs more fertilizer. And it probably needs uh, to be repotted. The ones when you buy them from, well, most anywhere you buy them, uh, they're going to be in a like a sphagnum moss, which is easy to get them started in, but hard to maintain them in long term. Um, I would uh, like say I I would suggest repotting it into a bark mix. Any good nursery is probably going to have a mixture. We usually pot in Douglas fir is a great material to grow them in. I would be fertilizing it about every two weeks with uh, has to grow grow or just a good liquid fertilizer. And I would be keeping it in a very bright window. Inside, direct sun is fine. Don't put it right up against the glass, of course. But uh, generally speaking, if an orchid is not blooming, it's the main reason is because it's not getting enough light. Um, We used to grow those commercially. We used to grow about twenty to 30,000 plants a year. I've been growing them since I was in the eighth grade. So I have a friend who despises an expert as a person who's killed at least a 1,000 plants. And so I'm an expert at orchids. But the phalaenopsis are easy to grow. They are one of the handful of orchids that can be grown as a house plant that does not require a greenhouse or a garden room. But uh, they do need plenty of light. They do need regular fertilizing and they need to be repotted about every two years okay i'll try that and if you have any questions uh you know bring it by run by the nursery with it sometime i repotted one for a lady yesterday that had been just like you she'd been trying to get it to bloom and it just needed a new pot and a little bit different care so uh should be an easy thing to do Uh, the one thing i will warn you about it Roel, is that uh when you successfully rebloom an orchid there's this certain bug that seems to bite you, and you just have an insatiable lust to grow every orchid you can find. And it's an, <laughs> an addiction that, uh, again, it got me in the eighth grade. By the time I got out of high school, I had 300 plants. By the time I got out of college, I had 3,000 plants. So I guess the good news is it'll keep your wife off the street and in the greenhouse. But <laughs> it's orchids are just fascinating, and very few people that grow and rebloom them successfully know where to stop. They just start getting all these new colors and all these new varieties so consider yourself yeah. forewarned <laughs> that sounds, okay i will all right bob thank you very much it's my pleasure thank Good you job. and by, do keep it warm phalaenopsis are some of the most oh, warmth okay. loving orchids so keep it at uh good home temperatures and it'll do well for you okay. all right let me get diane in here before the end of this hour good morning diane good morning bob good morning we planted um Oh, about a 15-foot Monterey oak in April. Okay. And it's doing well. Number Good. one, uh, just in different sections of the Monterey oak, the leaves are turning kind of an orangey gold. Are yes. they supposed to do that? Yeah, when we have a freeze. Monterey oak is what we call semi-evergreen. Uh, when you get a, a real sudden chilly blast like we got in October, it's going to lose a few of its leaves. In a really cold winter, it may lose every leaf. But uh, that's not abnormal, and it's not the sign of a problem. Now, I will tell you this tree is relatively newly planted in the ground. It's been over a month since we got a good rain. We've had a lot of drizzly stuff this past month. But if you haven't done it in the past month, it's time to give that Monterey Oak a real good soaking. Just lay the hose at the base of the tree, let it run for several hours but no don't worry about those few leaves it's losing that's normal 
I did that yesterday for three hours. Good so for we're you. Okay on the water. <laughs> You're in good shape then. Uh, a little fertilizer would probably be a good idea if you haven't already fed your grass and other things. Do that. But uh, your monterey oak's just sitting there growing roots for the winter. It's doing just fine. Okay. My other question is. Um, of course, you know, there's the trunk, and then there's two big uh, branches that make a Y. Okay. There are a lot of little limbs underneath that Y. Mm-hmm. Husband wants to know, can he cut those off? Can he or should he? He can if he wants to, and there's no reason to seal the wounds. But everywhere you have those little limbs, if they have leaves on them, they're making sugars, they're storing energy, they're pumping that back into the trunk, and the trunk is going to get thicker, stronger, more quickly if all those little limbs with leaves stay there. Now, as the top of the tree, the canopy gets thicker, those little bitty limbs are going to lose their leaves. There's just going to be little dead twigs, and you can prune those things out anytime you want. But if you want that tree to grow as quickly as possible and develop the thickest, strongest trunk possible, um, don't be cutting out uh, any leaves. If you have limbs up and down the side of the trunk, and you know you don't want to let them make big, broad, major limbs because they're too close to the ground, what you do is every winter go back and cut them back to about four to six inches long. Then when that trunk gets up to be six inches thick, then you can go ahead and cut them all the way off. We call it trashy trunk, and leaving those leaves up and down the trunk the first few years will give you a bigger, stronger trunk more quickly. Great. Thank you so much, Bob. You have a blessed Sunday. You do the same. Thank you, Diane. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.